Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you on another Sunday morning seeking a word from you. God, I pray that you would speak through me and that you would open up our hearts, our ears to hear the word that it is you have to say. Speak, O oh Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. So this past Thursday, I got to eat lunch at one of my favorite places of all time, Chick-fil-A. Oh, I love Chick-fil-A. Oh my goodness. You got, you got the buffalo and the ranch sauce, and when you combine both of them, it's just like the most heavenly combination of sauce known to mankind. You got Coke Zero, which you can't get very many places, so I love that. You got the play place for Daisy. It's just a wonderful atmosphere. Uh, and actually, I uh, used to work for Chick-fil-A. I worked at the Chick-fil-A down on Butterfield Road uh, across from the Yorktown Mall for about a year and a half while I was in seminary. And uh, something unique about Chick-fil-A, uh, if you've ever been there, you may have noticed this, they teach you to never say you're welcome. They teach you to never say you're welcome. When someone says, thank you, you're supposed to say, ah, so you've eaten there before, yes. All right, I'm not the only one. So uh, the reason that they teach you this is because Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, he was uh, staying at a Ritz-Carlton, and someone was t- taking his bags, and he said, thank you uh, to the person taking his bags. And the, uh, the attendant said, it was my pleasure. And it just so impacted Truett Cathy, he said, this place has such excellent customer service, I want to make this part of every restaurant that we have. And so now it's a part of the Chick-fil-A culture. So when you go to Chick-fil-A, you will never hear your welcome. You will always hear my pleasure. And I think this, this theme of saying it's my pleasure, this gets at what these parables are asking today. Why, why, why do we serve God? What is our attitude when serving? What motivates us to serve the Lord? And we're, we're continuing our parables uh, series, Unlocking the Parables, and we have two parables here that address why we serve God. What's our motivation? And so we have two parables with two points this morning, and I'll give you point number one first. Why do we serve God? We serve God because it is our delight. We serve God because it's our delight. The first parable we're going to look at is called the parable about the laborers in the vineyard. And uh, though, as we have seen throughout the series, sometimes the titles of the traditional titles of the parable do not give us the full story, because this parable really focuses on a very compassionate employer a very compassionate landowner. So I invite you to, t- to follow with me uh, and open up, open up your Bibles to uh, Matthew 20. We're going to be looking at this uh, parable. But before I get into it, we need to talk about the context. Because before this, in Matthew 19, Jesus has just had his famous encounter with the rich young ruler, whom Jesus tells to go sell all of his possessions and give to the poor, and the ruler walks away from Jesus sad. And then Jesus says his famous statement that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then Peter's, his mind's turning after Jesus says this. He's wondering, what is Jesus saying here? He says, well, the kingdom of God is not about riches or wealth. What are are we getting for all of this service? And this is why Peter says right after this in Matthew 19, 27, it's on the screen for you. Peter answers Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? You're telling this rich guy to give up everything. Are we going to get anything out of this? We have left our careers. We have left our families. We have left our land. We have left everything to follow you, Jesus. Our whole lives have been turned upside down. What's what's in it for us? What will there be for us? And then Jesus tells him in verse 29, Matthew 19 still. He says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters 
or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. In other words, Jesus is saying everything in the kingdom is getting turned upside down. Everything is getting reversed. The way that you value things, the way that you reckon things in your life, I'm going to turn it all upside down for you. Because the way you calculate the worth of things is totally the opposite of the way it should be. And then Jesus tells this parable about the labors and the vineyard to challenge the value system that is driving the question that Peter is asking. Peter's asking, what do I get for all this? So then Jesus tells him a story to challenge that question, to challenge that worldview that this is all about what I get out of life. So then he tells the story. We're now at Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Let's stop there. So there's this landowner. He goes to hire some day laborers for his vineyard. Uh, now being a day laborer was, very, was extremely difficult work. Uh, because unemployment was very common. You, you might not get hired. And if you don't get hired, you don't get paid. And if you don't get paid, you can't take care of your wife and your children at home. So it was a very difficult position to be in. And there was a spot in the cities in the marketplace where day laborers would stand uh, to try to find work. So these, these people in the story, they're not just sitting idly by, wasting their day away, hoping someone just comes and picks them up. No, they're at the employment agency of their day. They're trying to find work so that they can provide for their families. And so this landowner comes and agrees to pay a group of workers a denarius for working in his field. Now, this was the standard wage for a day's work a denarius was, and it was just enough to live on. It basically, it basically would keep you out of poverty, uh, and it was, just, it was just enough that you needed, no, no more than that. And so the owner, he agrees to this wage with the first workers and brings them to his vineyard. But then strangely, the owner goes back to the marketplace to hire more workers. What's going on with that? Why didn't the owner realize he needed more people to begin with? What is going on here? Well, some scholars suggest that the owner is seeing that there's all these, all, all these unemployed men waiting to be hired. hoping, And he sees this first group and he agrees with some of them. And he kind of is hoping that maybe others will come along and pick up those who are still waiting for work. So after a few hours, this compassionate employer... He goes back to see, man, are there still any others who didn't get picked up? Are there still people who need work? So when he goes back, he finds more looking for work. And he says, I will pay you whatever is right. Now, he doesn't tell them, as he did with the first group, that it's going to be a denarius. He doesn't tell them he's given the full day's wages here. Uh, and he tells them, I will pay you what is right. In other words, what is fair, what is just. We have to ask, what is fair pay for a man who is willing to stand all day in search of employment in order to feed his family. What is fair pay for, this, for these groups of workers? We're not told. But the workers, they probably themselves expect to receive less than a denarius, less than they need to live on, less than they need to feed their families, because they're working less than a full day. But better to come home to the wife and kids with something rather than nothing. So they agree to work. And now this compassionate landowner, he hires this group at about 9 a.m. And then he hires more at noon. Then he goes back again. There's still more people standing there, more at 3 p.m. And then he goes again at 5 p.m. one last time. Now at this point, the workday is nearly over. The first group, they started about 6 a.m. 
And the workday at this time would have been about 12 hours to get the work done. So that it's, they're about an hour left of the workday uh, when he goes to hire this last group of workers. And then he begins to wonder, why are these men still standing here looking for work? We're not, to, we're not told all the answers, but perhaps they were not viewed as maybe as strong or as experienced or as productive as the other workers who were picked up earlier. But we're not sure. But it's certainly not because these people are simply lazy. The, own, the landowner asks them, why has no one hired you? Or why, why they're standing there. And they say, no one has hired us. No one has hired us. That is why we are standing here. We have been overlooked. We are desperate for employment and we're out here still looking at 5 o'clock, hoping someone will give us something. And then the compassionate employer says, you go work in my vineyard also. Now, he doesn't give them a price at all. He doesn't tell them it's going to be a denarius. And he doesn't tell them he's even going to pay them what is fair or what is right. And so perhaps the workers are thinking, maybe he's just testing us. Maybe he's just putting, on, put us, putting us on a trial run here and seeing, a, seeing if he wants to bring us back tomorrow. They're wondering, maybe, are they going to get paid at all? So then when evening comes in verse 8, it's time to pay the workers. And the workers are paid in an unusual manner. They start, the, the owner pays them from beginning with those who were hired last. Beginning with those who had only worked about one hour. Now how shocked and delighted they must have been when the owner gives them a full day's wages. A whole denarius for working a measly hour. You see, the compassionate employer, he knew that these men still needed to feed and provide for their families, for the wives and kids at home. How could he give them any less than what they needed? They couldn't survive with anything less. And so then he proceeds to give every group of workers the same pay, a denarius. And then when it comes to the last group, they have seen every person, every group who has come after them receive a full day's wages. So when it finally is their turn to receive, they're expecting to receive more. After all, they started at 6 a.m., and they worked through the very hot Israelite sun. If you've ever been there, you'll know how hot it is. It is the heat of the day. It's very hot. And they bore the brunt of this work. They were sweating, and they certainly deserve more than everybody else. So how shocked they are when they receive the same pay as the person who showed up in the last hour. I'm sure they were angry. So they began to complain. And they complained to the landowner. They complained to their employer about this. And then in verse 13, it says, He answers one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? He's so generous. He's so generous. He, God is mind-boggling generous this, like this owner. And then he concludes with the same thing that he had just said to Peter. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Everything is getting turned upside down in my kingdom. This parable, it's about service in God's kingdom. And the workers here are concerned about what they are getting for their service. Peter began with the question, what, are we, what will there be for us? What will there be for us for our following you, Jesus? Am I getting what I deserve? And Peter is acting like the workers who were hired first and did the brunt of the work. And they, these workers in the story, they are the ones who agree to work for a price. They agree to work for the denarius. And perhaps that tells us, that clues us in, that they've been focused on 
getting what they deserve from the beginning. They've been focused on the price since they were hired. And I think, aren't we all tempted to serve God sometimes for what we can get out of it? For how it benefits us? Or maybe at least over time, feelings creep in that we are entitled to, to better treatment for the service we have rendered, whether it's by God or by the church. And Jesus is in, fact, is in effect telling his disciples that they have the privilege of serving Jesus right at the beginning of this amazing movement. But he's telling them, others are going to come along after you. And they didn't, they didn't bear the brunt of the heat of the day like you did, but they're going to be treated just as equally as the twelve. There's no seniority. There's no special ranks for those who have served longer in the kingdom. And this applies to the church as well. You can always tell churches are getting really unhealthy when members begin to pull rank. When members begin to pull seniority for how long that they have served or how long that they have been there. And then when new people and new ideas come in, sometimes in the unhealthiest of churches, they can be seen as an intrusion rather than a gift of God of new workers and new energy, new ideas. We all can be tempted in this area. And we can begin to look down on those who came in later, who came in after us, who didn't bear the brunt of the heat of the day like we did. And perhaps we might dare to think they don't deserve for their voice to be heard. They don't deserve to have, have a seat at the table because they weren't there when we were. They must wait their turn. They must earn their place in the family. But friends, in God's kingdom, no matter how long you've been in it, no matter how long you've been a Christian, we are all dearly, dearly loved and equally valued by God. We have a seat at the table. My, uh, my predecessor, uh, Pastor Rick Allnut, he used to say, I'm no important than anybody else in the church. I'm just as important as Lydian Visker is to this church. And if you don't know who Lydian is, she was an elementary school uh, child at the time, a child of the church. And, and Rick used to say, I'm no important than Lydian. She's just as important to the church as I am. And to be honest, I kind of thought, yeah, right. Pastor Rick... You're one of the most crucial members of the church. But, and perhaps from a standpoint of function, the pastor, the church chair, other worship leaders, they, yeah, they play a more visible role, a prominent role, but that doesn't make me or anybody else more important than anybody else. So whether you've been here for a long time, whether you've been here a short time, by the grace of God, you're in. By the grace of God, you're in. You're a part of the family. You have a seat at the table. Your voice deserves to be heard. You are part of this family by the sheer grace of God. Every person on the team is valuable. Every link in the chain is necessary. There is no rank in the kingdom of God. We're all family. We're all brothers and sisters. Our service in the kingdom, our service in the church, it's all based on the sheer grace of God. We don't serve for what we can get. We serve because we have received abundant grace. And because we have received abundant grace, it's our delight. It is our delight to serve in the kingdom. One biblical scholar, Lenski, he says this. He says, the owner at last found these idlers. He found them, which means that all the credit for even the little work they did belongs to him and not to them. If he had not gone out at this late hour, when no ordinary employer goes out to hire workmen, these laborers would never have accomplished anything. Every one of, them, every one of us gets his denarius Everyone enjoys the same temporal benefits that are connected with life in the church. Whether you're a new convert to following Jesus, 
or you've been a lifelong follower, we all receive the same. Whether you're the pastor or just a lay person in the congregation, we receive the same. Whether you are a child and just learning about the faith and growing up in the church, or whether you're a senior saint and been here your whole life, we receive the same. We're in the family by the grace of God. The first workers, they are interested in what they can get out of the work, but the last group of workers, they are just delighted. They are just delighted that they have found work. They are thrilled that they got hired. They are thrilled that someone picked them up. They didn't compare themselves to anybody else. They recognized that this owner was so gracious to come and find them and hire them and employ him in his vineyard. And whatever they got from it was just grace. Whatever they got from it was the grace of God. And when you know it's all of grace, it will be your delight to serve the Lord. You will enjoy serving God because you are so grateful for the grace that you have received. So instead of asking, what do I get for my serving? We need to be asking, can you believe that I get to serve? Can you believe that I get to serve? Not what do I get, can you believe that I get to? I get to come to worship with God's people this morning. I get to give God's money back to him. Unbelievable. I get to sing today. I get to teach children today. Can you believe that I get to serve my king and his people this morning? Oh, what a grace that is. It's my delight to serve. It is my pleasure. We delight to serve God because of his amazing grace. Why do we serve? Number two, we serve God because it's our duty. We serve God because it is our duty. Now, right off the bat, you might be thinking, how can serving God be both our delight and our duty? Because we often view what we have to do as opposed to what we want to do. We kind of view those as opposites. But when we come into God's kingdom, our hearts become, begin to be transformed so that we can begin to want to do what we must do. We begin to delight to do what is our duty to do. But the reality is, we know, none of us are perfect. We all need reminders that even when we don't feel like it, even when it doesn't delight us, it is still our duty to serve God. And Jesus told a parable about this in Luke 17. He says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while, I'll, while, while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Now, and the parable says, will he thank him? Now, the point of the story may be, yeah, the master doesn't have to literally say thank you to this servant. Uh, but the Greek here, the Greek word for thanksgiving, it has a bigger connotation. And it's really asking, will the master owe the servant anything for his service? And I can't get into now, but when you understand kind of this honor, shame, patron, pat, uh, you know, patron-client relationship, you might think, well, when you give someone service, they owe you something. But the reality is, no, this master does not owe the slave anything for the work that was done. So verse 10 says, Jesus says, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now this word unworthy it simply means what the question was asking. Nothing was owed to us. Nothing was owed to us. There was nothing that was owed to our account. God doesn't owe us anything for serving him. It's simply our duty to do so. And it doesn't matter how great our service to God is. The best Christians we can think of, those godly saints who love and serve and give their lives to God and people, 
When you think about them, if you remember the parable of the talents, they're like the people who got a ten times return on the gifts that God gave them. But even then, even when they are, live such productive lives for the kingdom, the master doesn't owe them anything for being productive. They've only done what servants do. After all, we are all commanded to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and to love our neighbors as our very selves. And when we do that, when we do that to the uttermost potential of our ability, we have only done what God commands us to do. It's our duty to love because that's what's expected of servants. You know, Laura and I, we spent a good part of our 20s diligently paying off our student loans. And we, we, were, we sent in multiple payments, multiple payments over, over the last decade. And I have to tell you, not one time did Bethel College or the bank send us a thank you note. Can you believe that? Unbelievable. Never, never one note saying, wow, we are so surprised that you paid back what you owed. We are so thankful. We are wondering if you're ever going to pay us back. We're, we're just thank you so much for going above and beyond. No, we only did what was our duty. We had a debt that we owed and we paid it. It was simple as that. No thank you was sent because it was our duty to do it. Now, I have to remind you that no parable, no analogy is a complete picture of God. And we know that from other scriptures, God does value and by his sheer grace, he does reward our feeble service. But we are given this image of a master and a servant to help us understand that our service to God is our duty. It is our duty. And I think in our culture, this, this image, this really needs to be recaptured. Because a lot of our motivation in the current climate is based on our feelings. We make decisions based on how we feel. So we serve where we want to. We serve in the areas that only we are passionate about. And we do what we only feel like doing. Now, we're all on a journey in our Christian life. And, and gosh, in the ideal, we all hope that we would all serve God because we're so grateful, because we're, it's such a delight, and, and we've experienced this grace, and every time we serve, it's out of this attitude of love and generosity. Well, let's be honest. We always don't feel that way, do we? We don't. There's sometimes where you really don't feel like it. You'd rather sleep in. You'd rather stay home than show up to serve or show up to church or show up, show up to do whatever it is God's calling you to do. And we need to remind ourselves of who we belong to who we belong to. We do not even own ourselves at all. God owns our entire life from beginning to end. He owns it because he's our creator. He made us. But for Christians, he doubly owns us because Jesus Christ poured out his blood on the cross and he bought you back. He redeemed you. You are bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we don't belong to ourselves. We have a master who we owe everything. And it's our duty to serve him. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. He tells Timothy, join, me with, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. In other words, a soldier has one mentality. I have an officer whom I must please. I'm going to live every day, every moment, to please my officer. I'm accountable to a person above me. And that's how we must view serving the Lord at times. We, are, we serve God. We let nothing else distract it because we're fulfilling our duty. And I have found personally, I have found that when I do what I am supposed to do, when I do my duty to serve the Lord, 
Something happens in my heart. God changes my heart and it actually begins to become my delight. The Holy Spirit begins to do a work that when we do what the Lord calls us to do, He brings a transformation and it becomes my pleasure to do it. You know, our church, our leadership, our, 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 our executive board and our staff are going through this book called Comeback Churches. Uh, it's written by Ed Stetzer and another guy named Mike Dotson. And they did a very long and in-depth study about churches who had been in decline or plateaued for many, many years. And all, and all of a sudden, through the power of the Spirit and other means, the church turned around, they made a comeback, and they saw new people come to Christ and baptisms and the church grew. And they studied over like 300 churches and they wanted to see, are there any kind of overlapping factors that help these churches come back? And there were many things in this book, and we're still going through it, but they talked about, one chapter talked about three faith factors that, the, that churches who made a turnaround exhibited. And number one was a renewed belief in Jesus Christ and the mission of the church. They, the churches, they said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We believe in the mission of making disciples, and we're going to recommit to that mission. Number two was more strategic prayer. That the church rallied together to pray to say, we need the Holy Spirit to bring renewal and revival to this place. And we're going to make a strategic, not a random, but a strategic effort to pray. And then the third faith factor, which honestly surprised me, was a renewed attitude for servanthood. A renewed attitude for servanthood. That the people said, you know what, the church, it's a place where I come to serve. And actually, the church as a whole, we are all servants to the community. We are meant to be a blessing to those around us. We're in the community, and we're for the community. And they had a whole attitude shift of what church was for these churches. It's a place of service. One of the phrases that we say around here is that every member is a minister. Every member is a minister. That is both our delight, it's our privilege, it's also our duty. It's a responsibility. And if you're a member here, you need a ministry. You absolutely need a ministry. We need people to be serving in significant ways. And sometimes it's an area that you're passionate about, and sometimes it's not. Someone has to set up the chairs. Someone has to sweep. Someone has to do the menial tasks. You know, when Jesus turned water into wine, he told some servants to go fill the water jars, and they filled the water. If those servants didn't fill the water, maybe there wouldn't be a miracle of water turned into wine. And the problem is, we all want the miracle without the work. We all want God to do amazing things. We all got, got, want God to transform our church, to transform our lives, to see new people come to Christ. We'd all love to Jesus to blow us away. But gosh, can someone else fill the water jar? Can someone else do that? I don't really want to do that. I don't really want to serve. But if we don't do the work, we might not get the miracle. We might not see God do amazing things above and beyond what we could ever imagine. Someone has to fill the jars of water. And if we want our church to thrive, we need the gifts and service of every single member and attender serving in significant ways. There should be no Christians, whether it's our church or others, who are merely attenders of worship services. That should never be the case. That would be, in all the love I have in my heart, that would be a shirking of our duty to serve the Lord, to serve the body of Christ. That is our duty to do so. And it, some questions just for reflection. If everyone served as much as you are serving in the church, how well would our church be doing? How well would we be doing? Imagine if every single person raised their level of service, how much more could our church be thriving? How is your attitude for service? 
Will you serve? Because it's both your delight and your duty. Friends, let me remind you, we do all of this because we have received amazing and abundant grace. The king of the universe stepped down from his throne, the rock of ages, who was cleft for us. He came down and he took on a towel. He washed feet. He served people. And then he died on the cross to serve you, to give you salvation, to give you his Holy Spirit. And we follow in his footsteps. Yes, there will be rewards for our work, for our work and we will all receive eternal life. And even, that, and even though we are unworthy, he will tell us, as Lon and as Ron heard recently, well done, good and faithful servant. And I believe when we see the Lord face to face, we will say, Lord, it was my pleasure. Let's pray.